You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Okay, if you have a Bible, please turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20. And then if you would... Um, slide over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 as well. So I'm going to read from Exodus chapter 20 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, if you've been here for any uh, stretch of time or any length of time, you probably know that normally when I approach, when we as a church approach a very difficult subject, like the subject that we will be dealing with this evening, I normally give like 50 caveats and 40 like disclaimers right? I'm like, okay, first thing is this. And second thing is that I do that over and over again. There is too many disclaimers for this sermon. Way too many, okay? We're talking about sex and sexuality tonight. So there's way too many disclaimers that I, I, I will give you, I would give you for this. And so I'm just going to read the text. I'm going to pray, ask God for help. As you guys know, we're in a uh, small series on the Ten Commandments. And tonight we come to Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Got it? Good. Okay. First Corinthians chapter 6, all things are lawful for me, Paul the Apostle writing, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but the body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that One who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her, for it is written, the two shall become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That's our text tonight. Let's, let's pray. God, I thank you, for, thank you for your word, God, and its power. And as I read it and as I discuss it and teach and endeavor to get to really our own hearts, all of our hearts, I, pray, I just submit my mouth to you and my mind and my heart to you right now, and I ask God that you would that you would help us to navigate this in a way that's honest and true and good and beautiful, Lord. And I pray that this church, in this church, that you, Jesus, would build in us a biblical, healthy, holy, sexual ethic that is completely different than where we live. And, and I understand that. I know that even the things I'm talking about, there might even be people in here, Christians in here, that don't agree with what I'm saying and people that are just invited here and are just totally caught off guard, I ask God for your grace and your help 
And I ask that you would speak and you would shape us, transform us, reorient us around your best. I need your help desperately. Would you even help the way, the way I say it? In Jesus' name, amen. The Bible has a sex ethic. And I can't, I can't apologize for the Bible's sexual ethic and what the Bible says about it. I can't apologize for the tone churches have used in discussing this ethic. Their condemnation, their tone of bitterness, their tone of anger at times. I can also repent for the Christian community and the way that it has used sex on the one hand to keep people out of the church and on the other hand they use sex to abuse the very people under their care. I can repent for that and I do. The way that the church has used sex and sexuality to say who's in and who's out and then the very people that are in betraying them very people that are in using sex in a way that demeans and destroys them. The church, though, has no bigger public record of hypocrisy than the issue of sex and sexuality. Many in the church have sexual behavior and attitudes towards sex that deviates from what the Bible teaches. I know that there are people in this very room that have sexual behavior and attitudes towards sex that deviate from what the Bible teaches. And due to this hypocrisy, it is no wonder why Christians have been unwilling to have civil discussion about sexual standards in our society. It's because we're afraid of it. We can't say anything about it because we ourselves are hypocrites. We're afraid of people calling out our own junk, our own stuff. There's actually hardly any real radical purity and holiness when it comes to sex, even in the church. There's just a lot of compromise and a lot of shame. But what I think we need to do as a church, and you have to realize that 1 Corinthians was a letter to the church and the Ten Commandments were given to the people of God that he called out of Exodus. What I think needs to happen is as a church, we need to reconsider what we believe about sex and sexuality until those beliefs become convictions. And then we need to practice what we profess and confess where we struggle. And only then can we re-engage the culture in a respectful dialogue about all aspects of human sexual behavior. And so when we came to this topic tonight in in the Ten Commandments, in our study through the Ten Commandments, that dealt with you shall not commit adultery. I could talk at length about what adultery is and what it isn't and all this other stuff, but I'm like, does this church even have a biblical sex ethic on which to base things upon? And so for the next two weeks, I just want to start doing that. I want to start laying this biblical sex ethic. The Bible has a sex ethic. And that radical ethic was one of the reasons why Christianity exploded in pagan Rome in the first century. The early Romans were astonished by the church's view on sexuality and their view on purity and and the way that they expressed purity. One of the things that was said about the church in the first century was this. They share their table with all, but not their bed with all. And this blew the Romans in the first century's mind. Like, what? what we, they did the opposite. They didn't open up their house hospitably to anyone, but they were opening their bed to anyone and anything. This radical hospitality, hospitality that served the poor and their radical purity was set apart as different in the sexual culture around them. 
And these ethics made Christianity a force to be reckoned with and a voice to be heard in that culture. And believe me, this culture in Rome and in Corinth was just as perverse as the culture that surrounds our lives today. The Bible has a sex ethic. And this sex ethic is rooted in the story the Bible tells about sex. So tonight, what I want to do is to tell the biblical sex story, and from there, as a people who live in this story, form an ethic from this story. So I want to tell the story, and then from out of this sexual ethic, start to build our, or the story, start to build our ethics. Now, I know that when I talk about sex, there are a lot of different emotions that this topic elicits in a room like this. Some of us are angry at God for their sexual temptation. Some are confused by the sex ethic debate. Some are guilt-ridden with their history. Others are wounded and broken by their past. And there are some in here that I know that are just frankly ignorant about what the Bible and what God says about sex. I've sat with many people or several people in this church that once they um, commit their lives to following Jesus, they start walking with Jesus. And then when we get to this topic of sexual ethics, they're like, wait, what? The Bible says that? Like there's actually a thing? I had no clue. And they're dumbfounded when I'd be in like, the Bible says this about sex. Like, what? Are you serious? It says something about sex? I had no idea. So I know that there might be people here that are just, just ignorant of, of what the Bible says about sex and sexuality. So what I want to do is I want to start where God starts to talk about sex, and that's obviously going to take us to the book of Genesis. So for the hundredth time in the last year, turn to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And what I want to do under this is just talk about when, what, what did sex look like when it was unadulterated? When God called it into being, what did it look like? And I'm going to read a couple of passages and make a few comments and then base everything on that. So let's start in Genesis 1, 26. Very familiar passage to us. I won't do a lot of groundwork on it. We, you can go back and listen to the sermon series that we did through Genesis 1 and 2. But let me just read this, verse 26. And then God said... Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now notice this. First commandment out of the gate, chapter one of Genesis, is not a thou shalt not. It's a thou shall. This is the first commandment, by the way, in the Bible. And what is it? Have sex Fill the earth with babies. That's a lot of sex. This is the first commandment in the scriptures. Okay? Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. This is like, this takes what was going on in chapter 1. It kind of expounds it. And, and then uh, this, this, this formation of Adam and Eve and God said, it was not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, the next little section is very important. You might think it's throwaway, but it's not. Listen. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. This is not just Adam naming animals. Adam is actually, God is having Adam look for a partner, look for a soulmate, look for someone to, to, to help him do what God's called them both to do. And Adam doesn't realize he needs someone. And so God is bringing him all these animals. Listen, and whatever man called them, every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the livestock and all the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. Now listen, but for Adam, 
there was not a helper fit for him. So not only was Adam naming these animals, there was something in there that he was looking for a partner. He was looking for a helpmate. He was looking for the other. And every single time he saw animals, he was like, that's not it, and that's not it, and that's not it. So the Lord God caused Adam, uh, God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken out of the man, he made into a woman and brought her to man. And then the man said, this is at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This is very poetic in Hebrew. And she shall be called a woman because she was taken out of man. Now, this next two verses are so important. You have to highlight them. You have to remember these verses for the rest of your life. Or at least the rest of the sermon. But hopefully the rest of your life. Listen. Therefore, because, therefore is there, it's basically saying, because of all of this, this is, the, this is the result, this is the end, this is the essence of all of it. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Let me get back to that in a second, but let's, let me do a couple things here. Let me pull out some words I think that are important to start building this story of sex that the Bible teaches. First, verse 27, the image of God. You were created in the image of God. You were created, we were created male and female together to reflect the image of creator God. This is physical. This means that this has to do with your physical bodies. God cares about your bodies. In the beginning, he made us male and female. Your bodies matter to God. The next one, which I think is very ignored in the sexual conversation, sex conversation or in, in our culture today. Procreation. One of the reasons, the glorious functions, the glorious reasons for sex was procreation. The purpose of sex was to procreate, to bring another life into the world. Could you just stop real quick and think about this? Another life, creating life. You have sex and you create a life. Like, has that lost its meaning? Like, we have several pregnant mommies in our church. Like, I don't want you to stare at them. But if you could stare at them, just look at their stomach. There's a life in there. We just had a baby born in our church four, four weeks ago. And he was here today. Like, they're holding him like, that's a life. You guys made that. You made that. Like, that's, that's crazy. You make life by having sex. Now you're guys like, oh, I know that. Like, I learned that so, so long ago. Guys, I, I, know, I know for some of you guys, you're like, yeah, I, well, most of us know that. But there is no other God-like attribute that comes close to that. You created another human being. How? Sex. But I know we have outsmarted God. We're like, we now know how to remove procreation from sex. We can, with 99 point something percent accuracy, remove procreation from sex. So sex can be fun without this. Now, stop for a second. Think about this. I'm not going to get into some birth control debate. But the way that God created sex was that you would create another life. 
Imagine you're married. If you're married, that's not hard. If you're not, that might be difficult. And the act of sex includes this. You and I might create life. Doesn't that, what, what does that add to sex? Doesn't that add this whole different dimension of intimacy and love and like, we're going to do this. We're going to create life. It's going to be really fun, but we're going to create life together. That's insane. And we've, we've, we've all but detached that from sex. Because we've, we're, we're, we're smart. We know how. The other word is oneness. 225 says the two shall become one flesh. This is a radical uniting of two people. In graphic language, their relationship is spoken of as becoming one flesh. This oneness, this one fleshness both is and is not a metaphor. In one sense, a husband and wife enter in an institution that points them towards familial, domestic, emotional, and spiritual, spiritual unity. In that sense, it, like, it's a metaphor. It, 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 it's a metaphor of their whole life is joined together. But this one fleshness is not a metaphor in that when Adam speaks of his wife, when he wakes up and sees her, it's overtly sexual, suggesting sexual intercourse, the spiritual and emotional and the physical act of sex where it's hard to tell where one body stops and the other starts. See, the Bible is not prudish when it, or shy when it talks about sex. If you've ever read this small, tucked-away book in the Bible called The Song of Solomon, if you haven't, you're going to find it tonight. You're like, oh my gosh, guess what I found? I found, it's, just, it's an erotic, romantic book about sex. It's basically a graphic book inviting you into this couple's honeymoon. And if you're poetic, if you have that poetic mind where you could understand poetry and you're, you're picking up what Solomon is laying down, you're like, they're not shy about sex at all. If you start reading that book and like, whoa, that, what does that mean? Is that what, what, what? Like if you start doing that with the book, like what does that really mean? Oh, oh it, it gets pretty graphic really fast. The Bible's not prudish when it talks about sex. Proverbs talks about how we're to be satisfied with our spouse's body, even saying that you are to be satisfied all the days of your life with your wife's breasts. Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about how when you're married, your body belongs to your spouse, and he's talking about it in the context of sexual intimacy, and not to deprive each other. See, in Corinth, they were like, well, we're so holy, we're, we're married, we're so holy, we don't have sex, and Paul's like, you're stupid. Like, have sex and have sex regularly. And your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to your spouse. And your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to your spouse. And sex is not about getting as much as it's about giving each other, serving each other in sexual intimacy. Your body belongs to the other now in sex. Now, there's a problem when the Bible, when Bible teachers and pastors like me, when we talk about sex, we always take you back to Genesis. Everyone does. And it sounds convincing at the time. I'm up here talking about sex and sexuality, and I go to Genesis, and I read something to you. And they're like, oh, okay. And then you go home, and you're like, wait, what did he say again? Like, is that true? Does the Bible really say no, like, sex in marriage only? Is and so, and then you might be having a weak moment, so you go back to Genesis, and you start reading. And you read Genesis 1. You're like, okay, I don't, I don't understand that. And you read Genesis 2, and you get to the end of the 2, and you're like, wait. And what you're not going to find, you'll never find the words marriage or sex. And you read Genesis 1 and 2, like, where does it say marriage? And where does it say sex? 
Like, did I miss something here? Like, I read something about animals and Adam going to sleep and him waking up saying, talking about, like, Eve being the bone of his bones. Like, I don't even know what that means. Like, what, did I miss something here? Where does Genesis 1 and 2 talk about human sexuality? Here's where. You need to know this. Verse 20, 25 in chapter 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united with his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. The man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. This last verse here in Genesis 2 is marital, covenantal language. What happens in sex is to be had in the covenant of marriage. Why? Here's why. Genesis 1 and 2 builds up and leads up to Genesis chapter 2, verse 25 and 20, 24 and 25. And this is where all of biblical sex ethic hangs from, right here. Chapter 2, verse 24 and 25, all biblical sex ethic hangs right on this verse right here. Let me show you what I mean by that. In Genesis chapter 2, everything was good, meaning sex was perfect. Everything was perfect. There were actually no laws. There's actually one law. Don't eat the tree. But other than that, no laws. Garden was perfection, perfect bodies, perfect food, perfect sex. Everything was perfect. And then sin happened. Sin polluted everything. And because sin polluted everything, it polluted sex, and it polluted sexuality, and it polluted sexual identity, and it polluted sex in marriage. And we know what God wants for sex and sexuality. It's right there in the beginning, chapters 1 and 2. But we know that we're all broken. We all, we all know that, that because of the vandalism of shalom, because the, of sin in the world, it includes sexual brokenness. Sex goes bad. And what does God do? Now listen. This is what God does. God puts laws in place protecting and governing sex and sexuality. What God is doing when there's laws throughout the Bible, he's trying to protect and maintain this right here. Every law sexually maintains this law right here. This is the way I made it. This is the way I created it. And when he puts laws, what he's trying to do is hem people in and points them all back to this. This is how I created it. This is how I want it to be. And because of this, we have now our text in Exodus chapter 20, you shall not commit adultery. Why shall you not commit adultery? Because of this right here. Because it breaks this. You're in covenant with your wife. You're in covenant with your husband. And you're, not to, you're supposed to leave and cleave to them for the rest of your life. You've vowed your lives to one another. Don't separate what God has joined together. Why you shall not commit adultery? Because it breaks this. It breaks God's design for marriage and sex. See, the Bible starts with, here's what's right and what's true and what's good. And by implication, saying anything that's not this is wrong, false, and sin. And because the people of God just didn't get it, and because the culture that surrounded them didn't get it, God added more law. Now, have you ever wandered beyond Genesis and accidentally got yourself in Leviticus? Have you ever done that? And you start reading like, whoa, I need to back out. Like, like abort mission. Like, this is crazy. This is getting weird. And if you were brave enough, you, can, you kept reading. And you got to Leviticus 18. 
and all, Leviticus 18 is where all these sex laws, sex laws. Now, why sex laws? Why all these laws governing the way that we, we have sex? Because it was like, you shall not commit adultery. Okay, I can't commit adultery. Got it. Um, can I have sex with my sister? No. Okay. Can I have sex with my goat? No. Like, that sort of stuff happening. And you laugh, but that's exactly what was going on. Like, like the culture around them and the culture in Israel, they, they didn't know how, how to, to operate this. So God would give them laws to hem them in, to point them back to this. And so you read Leviticus 18, and it says, no sex with your relatives. Now, the first question that might come up when you say that, like, well, who's my relative? Leviticus will tell you. You read Leviticus 18, there's 18 verses of who might be your relative, so don't have sex with them. None of you shall approach one of his close relatives to uncover the nakedness. I'm the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister. And it goes on and on and on. Why? Because is that person related to you? Yes, you're related to that person. Don't sleep with them. Well, what about them? Yes, them too. And so Leviticus went through all the laws, hemming them in to point them back to this. Wouldn't it be easier to say just have sex with your spouse? Yeah, it would be. But they still didn't get it. And so Leviticus goes on. No sex with your relatives. No sex with a woman on her period. No sex with a man. No sex with an animal. This is what's called the law. Now, before you want to argue the law, some people, a lot of people who are very versed in this conversation will say, whoa, wait, if you hold to the Leviticus 18 law, then you better hold to like all the other ones. Like you can't wear cotton polyester blend shirts because the Bible, it says right there in Leviticus, you shouldn't wear blended, uh, garments made of blended materials. And you can't eat a cheeseburger either. Those are glorious because it's like this meat and cheese combo, which is delicious, but it's just not, not in Leviticus. You can't do that in Leviticus. So you better obey all the other ones if you're telling me to obey these sex laws in Leviticus 18. Now, let me ask you this. What is the purpose of the law? There were different laws. We talked about them when we first started. There were the ceremonial laws. There were moral laws. But let me ask you this general question. What is the purpose of the law? Here's the purpose of the law. Galatians 3.19 says, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Why was the law given? Because people sinned. Because people kept leaving what was good and right and true. And God kept adding laws to push them back to the way he created it. What were the sexuality laws trying to get at? What were all the sexuality laws, the ones in Leviticus and the ones in Exodus, what were they all pointing to? Thou shalt not commit adultery and then all the lists in Leviticus. What are they all trying to preserve? This. Genesis 2.25. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Now I know that this might be hard to hear. I know that the church has done a very bad job at this. What with all the sexual immorality in the church and the divorce rate being the same in the church as outside the church. But let me humbly say to you that this is the hope of the Bible. This is the hope of Jesus is to get everyone back 
to shalom, to wholeness, everyone. Let me show you how this is true. Matthew chapter 19. Jesus gets all kinds of questions pertaining to life and money and parenting and marriage and finances and everything. And the Pharisees, these people who observed every part of the law down to where they were tithing mints and herbs, they'd go and get the farmer's market and get herbs and they would tithe herbs to God. They were like, okay, one mint leaf for you, nine for me, one for you, nine for me. They would do that with everything. They observed the law to a T and so they came up to Jesus. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, verse 1, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and large crowds followed him and healed him there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by saying this. And they asked them about this law of divorce. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Isn't that interesting? Any cause. Like they had this thing where they, they, you can get divorced for anything. A divorce was rampant in the Jewish community in the time of Jesus. They would just divorce wife like, you burnt dinner. You're, I divorced you. You changed somehow. I divorced you. They were divorcing for any reason possible. And they go to Jesus like, can, I, can, we get, can we divorce our wives for any cause? And this is what Jesus said. Look, what Jesus, look at how Jesus answered this question. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. What is happening? What is Jesus doing? He's pushing them back to Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. Can we get divorced? Have you not read what it was like in the beginning? This is how God made you. And then they answer back. Well, Moses said, why did Moses command that we can give a certificate of divorce and send her away, her, her away, like whatever, that, that chick that I married? Why did Moses say that we can like just send him away? And look, what, look how Jesus responded. Because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. From the beginning, the way that God intended it, the way that God made it, it was not so. Jesus tells the Pharisees, in order to answer this question about the law, let's go back to the pre-law. What all the law really points to, the way that you and I were meant and created to live. And he says, from the beginning, that's how he answers the question. Now, it is true that Jesus did not talk about premarital sex in the straightforward way that you and I would expect it today. It is true that Jesus did not talk about homosexuality. It is true that Jesus did not talk about pornography or masturbation. But it is equally true that Jesus was restoring everyone back to created order. Everyone. He was pushing everyone back to Genesis chapter 2. He was pushing everyone back. This is the way it was in the beginning. This is how God made everything to work. One author I read said that if a New Testament writer was to lecture or discuss sexual conduct in our modern churches today, we might be shocked to hear him say something like this. 
your culture talks about sex so much because it enjoys it so little. And it enjoys it so little because it understands it so superficially. See, there's a depth to sex that is misunderstood and missed completely in this culture. And what Jesus does, he points us all back to it. See, though the Bible says that sex is a gift from God, there's something that is always, there, sex is always mediated by culture. God gives us the gift of sex, but culture always acts like a middleman who brings about the language we use when we talk about sex, even the value that we place on sex. See, we live in a, a culture that has moved away from any real moral foundation for our lives and have more or less transitioned into an age in which individual preference and choice trump everything. In, even in the church, where's your moral, where's your moral compass? What, what morally shapes you? And what, what we all kind of say without saying is that preference, choice. We're a therapeutic culture, so it's like what I feel like doing. We're a therapeutic culture, even to the sense where we, we keep loving this Jesus church thing as long as Jesus keeps feeding us those spiritual buzzes, those spiritual highs. As long as, as the church is giving up the goods, making me feel good, I'm in. But as soon as it starts making me feel bad, I'm out. One writer, one author in his book, Sex in the Eye World, uh, Dale Kuhn says, we live in a culture where its core commitments of our society are first to provide space for the maximum legal amount of individual freedom through the expression of individual rights, and second, to make sure that such an expansion does not violate the rights of others. We live in a culture where it's all about individual freedom and the expansion of individual rights as long as that expansion does not violate the rights of others. And so he says, sexual relations are now governed by consent rather than covenant. Sexual relationships are now like, well, are you into it? I'm into it. We're in. But not covenant, consent. The story that we live in is a story in which our culture is telling us that we're free and, and we have the right to do what we want as long as the other person is willing. So when I, when I talk about the biblical story of sex and sexuality, I think there might be some of us that think, well, that can't be right. That, that can't be what the Bible is saying. And I would, I would just press you a little bit and go, well, why not? And you would go, well, because it, it, it goes against everything I feel. It goes against my individual choices. When we hear the biblical story, we might think, well, my girlfriend and I are the exception. Why are you the exception? Because we're in love, and I'm committed to her, and she's committed to me. See, we say things like this, because what we've, what we've kind of boiled everything down to is consent. We boiled everything down to our own preference, our own choices, when we look at Scripture, we see sex is actually two people in life union together. It's two lives uniting in the most profound and graphic and glorious way possible to show the oneness of body and spirit. Sex may seem like a casual thing, but it's not. Let me quote C.S. Lewis, and you knew I was going to quote C.S. Lewis. Let me quote C.S. Lewis from your Christianity. The Christian idea of marriage is based on Christ's words that a man and wife are to be regarded as a single organism. 
The male and the female were made to be combined together in parts, not simply on the sexual level, but totally combined. The monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all other kinds of union which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union. The Christian attitude does not mean that there is anything wrong about sexual pleasure any more than, the, than about the pleasure of eating. It means that you must not isolate that pleasure and try to get it by itself any more than you ought to try to get the pleasure of taste without swallowing and digesting by chewing things and spitting them out again. God bless C.S. Lewis. This is so good. What he says is that we have separated sex from the holistic purpose it was created for. Sex was a way for you to stand before your, your, your the state, your peers, your family, and your fiancé, and God, and say, I am giving my life completely to you. I'm making myself completely vulnerable to you. I'm giving you my heart and my mind. And we're joining bank accounts, and we're joining homes, and we're joining lives. And the way I'm going to show you all of that is by being naked and unashamed before you. Financially, emotionally, and physically. But what C.S. Lewis says, what we do is we try to pull that physical part out of the holistic reality of marriage. We pull the physical fun part out, and we isolate it. And he says it's like trying to do that with food. I mean, we're, we live in a foodie city. We know this. We love good tasting food. If you try to remove the taste of food from the holistic reality that food exists in, like eating food and digesting food and get, giving you energy and nourishment, and you're like, no, I just want to eat it and taste it. You can't do that. You know you can't do that, but we even try to do that, don't we? And that's called an eating disorder. And what C.S. Lewis is saying is that we have a sexual disorder. Our culture has a sexual disorder. We're isolating sex from its holistic reality. And it's making us sick. And it's destroying the reality. It's destroying marriage. And the beauty of sex and sexuality. Paul uses a similar story in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. The body is not meant for sexual morality. But for the Lord and the Lord for the body, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take then the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two shall become one flesh. What does Paul do? Are you starting to see it now? Hopefully you are. What does Paul do? Takes him back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. All biblical sex ethics hang on that. Pushes them back. Everything, every law, every commandment, every, everything points it back to this. Paul is saying here that you're a whole person, that you're spiritual and you're physical and you can't separate the two. See, I've been teaching um, the Bible for a while. I, I first started teaching the Bible to junior hires, and so I, I taught this kind of sex ethic for a very long time. And when I taught it in junior high, I mean, I used, like, weird illustrations and goofy object lessons that I'll never bring in here, but whatever, and uh, taught high schoolers in college and 
now the church. And I never honestly really liked this passage. And the reason why I never liked to, to share this passage is because it says the word prostitute. And I know that in a, in a crowd this size, there actually might be people who are having sex with prostitutes. I know there might even be a prostitutes in here. But I think the reason why I didn't like it is because it, it, it allows us to throw the flag like, well, I'm not having sex with a prostitute. I'm having sex with my live-in boyfriend or girlfriend, and we love each other. I'm having sex with my fiance. I'm having sex with my boyfriend, girlfriend for four years. I'm having sex with people that I know. It's not a prostitute. I'm not paying for it. It's not like... Paul here is not saying... He's not saying, okay, you, you can't have sex with a prostitute because you're paying for it. Paul uses prostitution as a case study. He says you can't have sex with the prostitute. Why? Because you're not in love with him or her? That's not what he's saying. He's like, hey, don't have sex with prostitutes because you don't love them. Fall in love first and then have sex. He's not saying that. Paul is not arguing that prostitution is bad because you don't love them. Paul is saying that when you have sex with someone, you are joining your body and your soul with that person and you're becoming one flesh with them. And he's using a case study with prostitution. You're becoming one, one flesh with the prostitute. And he would use the same thing with the girlfriend, boyfriend, or whatever. You're becoming one flesh with them. Sex is a nonverbal way of saying, I belong exclusively and completely to you. I'm in covenant with you. And the way that I practice that covenant and live out that covenant and communicate that covenant in, God ordained, in, in God's ordained way is by the pleasurable, wonderful, glorious act of sex. To put this in contemporary language, it's like when the main character in the movie Vanilla Sky leaves the girl and she says to him, don't you know that when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise whether you do or not? That is what the Apostle Paul is saying. When you have sex with someone, you are, make, you are saying, you are communicating something, whether you don't want to communicate that or not. It means something, whether you want it to mean something or not. It's, it's a lie to engage in oneness without being one. When someone says, you know, let's hold off on marriage. don't really want to marry you, but I do want to have sex with you. You're saying you want intimacy without commitment. That's not a holistic, real approach to sex and sexuality. So what does, what is our church's sex ethic? Where do we start? This is where we humbly start. We humbly start by this. Is it this? Is it Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 and 25? We do what, what actually all of the scriptures do, and we do it humbly and lovingly like Christ did. And he points them back to, this is how it was in the beginning. This is how you were created. Now, before the people who are married say, I'm so glad I'm married. This is my first sex talk when I'm married, so I, tonight I could possibly go home, have sex, and be awesome. Before you get excited if you're married or before if you're the, part of the not married crowd, when you're saying, well, what if I don't even want to be married in that way? Or I want to be married, but I'm not, and it's not fair. Jesus does something on the Sermon on the Mount to point to our hearts. He takes this commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And people there were like, yeah, I don't commit adultery. I don't, 
Leviticus 18, I got that down. And he says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, how's your heart? Your heart's full of lust. So let me ask you, married and unmarried, the way that Jesus did on the Sermon on the Mount and get to the heart, how's the pornography issue going? How's the Fifty Shades of Grey type of literature going, if you could call that literature? What do you daydream about? What do you fantasize about? Now, it's safe to say that we're, under that, we're all guilty. We're all sexually broken. But what you need to hear, and I think this is not said enough, at least not said enough in this church, is that Jesus doesn't just redeem your soul. He redeems your physical body. Jesus cares about your body, and he redeems your body. You might think, well, yeah, I have guilt, and he's going to cleanse me, come into my heart, or whatever. Jesus loves your physical body. He cares for your physical body, and he could redeem your physical body. You're like, I, this, t- this teaching would have been great like 10 years ago. But I just, don't, I just completely feel unworthy to stand before God. If this is the standard, I completely fall short. The wonderful, marvelous gospel says Christ not only redeems our souls, he redeems our body. 1 Corinthians 6. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit that is within you, whom you have from God? Now here it is, listen. You are not your own, for you were bought with the price. Now we think, well, he's redeemed my soul. Yes, but he's redeemed. The context is your body. Christ has saved and cleansed and can cleanse and can save your very physical body. So glorify God in your body. Jesus redeems our body. He cares about it. He heals it. And Jesus is most attracted to the most broken people. If you read through the Gospels, he always is beelining to broken people especially sexually broken people. And he brings about restoration. He brings about healing. He brings about forgiveness. This is what Christ does. And the way that Christ can do this and does do this is that Christ took on a physical body. The metaphysical became physical and dwelt among us. And John 1, John chapter 1 says, he's full of grace and truth. And this is how I'll end. Full of grace and truth. Let me give you the truth. Because Jesus is full of grace. The Bible, the church, should be full of grace and truth. And so we should not shy away from truth. I cannot apologize for the Bible sexual ethic. Here's the truth. This is the reality of sex. Genesis chapter 2, 24 and 25, that's the truth. Everything underneath that is missing the mark that God has set. The best that God has, had, has the holistic way to look at the reality of sex. That's the truth. But here's the grace. There is wholeness and there is redemption for all who come to him. The truth might be narrow, but the grace is wide. The truth might be this is it. This is the only way, but the grace is come to Jesus. All you who are broken, abused, sinful, have been sinned against, self-righteous, Come to Jesus.
And that's what I want to do in our, in our time as we respond to God. I want, I want this church, first, I, I, I want to see our, our church just corporately repent and say, I know there's some of you in here that are so filled with self-righteousness and bigotry and against people who are not as sexually whole as you. And you need to repent of that sin. Some of us are so hardened by sin's deceitfulness, we're like, this is so dumb. And I would call you to repent too. And there's some in here that just are like, I don't even know if God can even, I don't even know if I have the physical and emotional strength to even come forward to take communion because I just feel so unworthy. May the Holy Spirit minister to you. May God's Spirit open your eyes to His love and His grace towards you. His acceptance of you, not by your merit, but because of Christ's merit. Because of His perfection and His sacrifice on your behalf. Receive that. And church, I want us all together, as we take communion tonight, as we respond on these carpets in either repentant or thanksgiving that Christ has saved us. Let's do this with an attitude of humility. Let's go, God, we want to have, we want to have a good biblical sex ethic. We want that mixed with this radical humility that goes, I'm no better than anyone else. I'm broken too, and God is putting me back together. How? He's bringing us back to wholeness the way that he created us to be. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the promise of your word, and I pray that you would minister to us right now, Christ. By your spirit, God, you minister to us. I, I confess my sexual brokenness. God, I know that I've seen sex wrongly and used sex wrongly. And I pray that you would, that together, God, as we repent before you, that you would heal us, that you would set us right again. And that you would reform our hearts. Reorient us, God submit to you, I submit this church to you, and I pray, God, that, that you would change us, that you would really minister healing, emotional and physical, right now in Jesus' name, amen.